The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Thanks for coming on. It's such a cold night. So uh, I'm finishing up a series of talks on the nuts and bolts of sitting practice. And... Uh, <laughs> Starting next week, or possibly the week after, depending on what we cover tonight, we'll start looking at how mindfulness practice looks in daily life. But uh, to start off tonight, I just thought I'd check and see if there's anybody who has any questions about sitting practice, something that's happening that you're not clear how to work with, or just any clarifications of instructions that you'd like. Good. So what I thought I'd do tonight and possibly next week is talk a little bit about um, renunciation. And you might remember over the course of the last four or five weeks, I covered the, the point that when we, in order to sit, we have to have some sense of intention, like why we're doing what we're doing. Why sitting meditation practice? And it seems so obvious, but it's actually easy to overlook. And we, instead, we just, especially if you've been doing it for a while, you do it on automatic pilot. You just kind of sit down, probably rushing to get to your meditation practice. You sit down, and then you do it. But actually, what, what gives the practice a real punch, in the sense like a, a transforming time, is if we connect with our deepest aspiration. Like, what are, what are we trying to do with our life? Oh, yeah, I feel bound up, and I want to be free, or something like that. But not theoretically. You want to find that aspiration that's alive in you right then. Otherwise, your practice is likely to be mechanical. You're just doing it because somehow you remember it's a good thing to do. But you're not, you're not really connected to what it's about for you. And don't be surprised if your mind resists this part of the practice, the first couple minutes or whatever, the first few seconds. It doesn't need to take long at all. Literally, it could happen in two seconds. You could remember why the heck you meditate. But your mind might resist, like, oh, this is silly. I don't need to think about this. I, don't, I know why I'm meditating. Or you're afraid to say, well, I don't know why I'm meditating. I've forgotten. And then you have to do some work. You have to, like, what is this about? What am I trying to do? What is important for me in my life? How does this fit into it? So you need to do some reflection. Get really clear. And the way you know you're clear, when you connect with a true aspiration, you feel energized. And aspiration is something that inspires us to action. Meditation is just a kind of action, right? So if we connect with our aspiration, we feel motivated then to do it. It's like we're connecting with our confidence that this practice is wholesome. It leads somewhere. It does some good. And then we do it. So the first part is just to reconnect with your intention or aspiration. And then the doing it part, now we're already sitting. We're feeling somewhat stable. And then we want to recall directly, not as a concept, but we want to recognize the present moment. 
or we want to recognize the difference between distraction and awareness that this is how it is. So it doesn't mean that that particular moment of recognizing the present moment is any particular way. It doesn't mean you're recognizing the body sitting or the breath in the body or the sounds of the birds. It just means you're not distracted in that moment. You're recognizing that the whole point, the whole working space of meditation practice is the present moment. So that's the place, of course, to begin. I mean, we'll lose it, probably a lot, but we should start our set in the present moment, not distracted. And it's amazing, you know, I, I'm somebody who's practiced for a long time. I can still begin a meditation period distracted. So here I am, you know, sitting down, and all of a sudden I'll realize five or ten minutes into the sit that I haven't actually begun my sit yet. Has that ever happened to you? <laughs> Be honest. And if you don't know it hasn't, that it's happened, it doesn't mean it hasn't happened. <laughs> it just means maybe you began with distraction, the middle was distraction, the end of the sit was distraction, and you left, not realizing that you hadn't done your practice. But you just had a relatively concentrated period of distraction. <laughs> there weren't too many distractions disrupting your distraction. <laughs> really, that's a lot of what happens. So we remember the intention. We remember it's about the present moment. And then we, we engage some sort of training or technique, you know, like coming into the body. That's a very simple technique, using the body as an anchor using the inhalation and exhalation as an anchor for the attention. And that training of learning to connect and sustain, learning how to start over skillfully, not with aggression, but with a real patience and gentleness, but also persistence, you know, starting over. Every time the mind wavers, wanders, gets lost, no matter how long, we don't start by judging ourselves. We simply start by, oh, distraction is like this. Breathing in is like this. Breathing out is like this. So that's the whole mechanism. That's the technique part of mindfulness practice, is knowing what your anchor is. So it's some neutral object that we're training. We're, we're learning how to recognize when the mind goes from distraction to the mind that knows connecting with the present moment object. So there's a unity there. There's a, it's, a, it's a real noticeable experience when the mind really is intimate even for just an instant with like the breath or sensations or sounds it stands out it kind of uh, there's a certain power to it so that's we call connecting and then we try to sustain that it's like riding a bronco I don't know I've never ridden a, a wild horse <laughs> but I did know someone who she was the national champion Bronco rider for a couple of years and she taught at the same school I taught in I taught at in uh, the Bay Area in, in California and uh, but anyway I you have the sense that in order to stay on a, a wild horse or a horse that's trying to get rid of you is that you can't you know the horse is stronger than you so it's not about muscling the horse and if you ever watched the guys I've gone to a couple rodeos if you ever watch them they're pretty they're pretty relaxed uh, on the horse and and basically just allowing the horse to decide what it wants to do and being willing to go along for the ride literally and then you know if you do that you can stay on for a while and this is a little bit like the sustaining part so when we have an anchor like the breath connecting is just 
recognizing that we've been distracted, and this art of landing back in the present moment. And of course, as soon as we know we've been distracted, we're there. We've already landed in the present moment. So the real touch about uh, connecting is not, it's, it's too rough, it's too aggressive if we think, oh, I've got to take my mind and put it on the breath. It's not that, it, that's a little too gross for this practice. It's much more like we're distracted, then we realize we've been distracted, and then in that realization that we've been distracted, it's a kind of relaxation or trust that the breath, whatever our anchor is, it will just arise there in the space of the mind. So we don't have to feel like we have to quickly put the attention somewhere. But it's more like being patient, trusting, and then the, the next in-breath or out-breath will just be known. It may be faint, it may be clear, it may be smooth, it may be rough, it may be deep or shallow. But whatever it is, if we have the intention to come back to the anchor, then that's all, that's enough. Just the intention is enough, and then being patient. And just allow the breath to arise in the mind. Allow the mind to know and to make that connection. And then the sustaining is a little bit like just really trusting, like allowing the breath to unfold in the space of the mind. Right? Because that's where the breath is being known. Knowing is a mental function, right? So we may think that we're somehow getting in the body, but... The, the whole idea of the body, the whole experience of the body, is a mental thing. We can't know the body except with the mind, right? Everybody get that? So what we're learning to do is recognize the space of the mind that is sensitive to body sensations and sensitive to thoughts and sensitive to everything we call our existence. It all is arising in the space of the mind. And so that's the real art in terms of working with the anchor of connecting and sustaining. A lot of it is just remembering the intention to be with the breath and relaxing or trusting or being patient. And just allowing the breath to do whatever it does. So even here, that that principle of renunciation that I want to talk about is so important because we have to renounce all of our tendency to want to, you know, we're like, we'd feel much better if we could really take a hold of the breath, really grip it, you know, lock it down, get some Velcro, pull it down. Okay, got it, I got it, here it is. But it doesn't work that way. What we get is tension. You know, we get a lot of tension, but we we sort of go right through the breath. And then we get frustration, you know, and judgment. And then we feel helpless. And then we get up and leave. <laughs> That's what happens. It's really a frustrating experience. If we, uh, it's already a frustrating experience, right? For how many of you is watching your breath frustrating? <laughs> Honestly, at least at times. No, I'm sure, hopefully it's calming sometimes and, and wonderful sometimes. But it's often frustrating. Of course, the breath isn't frustrating. But the, the attitude we have about how to watch the breath, how to be mindful of the breath, is a frustrating attitude. It's like too gross. It's, it's sort of missing the point. Because... Knowing is a natural, automatic function of the mind. We don't have to do anything to know things. Like, you're not making any particular effort to know the sound of my voice right now. Nobody has to strain to hear my voice. 
the only way you could prevent yourself from hearing my voice is you'd have to concoct some really strong thought or fantasy. And you might, you might be able to not be conscious of my voice for moments. But that would take some work. You know, we'd need a good novel or a good, you know, one of those little portable DVD players with a good movie, you know. And uh, even so, even with that, it may not be so easy. So knowing is effortless. So the, the real key is the sort of remembering not to get distracted, remembering that this is the anchor. So that's the real work of the anchor, this part of meditation practice that really is a mental training. If there's no muscular effort required, and, and not even so much of a willful effort, the effort is, is more this uh, effort of remembering, remembering there's a breath coming and going, remembering there's a present moment in which the breath is being known, the body is being known. It's already being known is whenever the mind's not distracted. So that tells us a lot, too, about when we come back from being distracted, there's not like a particular effort that we need, which is what we normally think. Like when we make a mistake, like, you know, if you uh, play basketball and you make a mistake and somebody steals the ball from you, then, you know, then it makes sense. You've got to like really work to try to get the ball back. But even, even in something like basketball, it doesn't really work. The best thing to do when somebody steals the ball is just to do what you always should be doing, you know, paying attention, you know, playing defense when you're on defense, playing offense when you're on offense. Because a lot of times what happens to, like, athletes when something bad happens is they overcompensate, you know, and then they get a fall or they get, you know, make another mistake instead of just getting back into the groove. And that's the same thing with meditation. Even if, in, even if we've sort of been wandering about far reaches of the mind, you know, all of our fantasies or fears or worries or whatever we've been doing, and then we come back after 20 minutes, we don't need to overcompensate. Oh, you know, I'm going to really try. Because <laughs> it's like we just, we kind of scoot right through a moment of mindfulness and right out the other end, right into distraction again, like the distraction of being a bad meditator, the distraction of thinking I'm somebody who has to work really hard now to make up for being distracted for the last 10 minutes. So it, it's this really light touch, learning to work with the anchor. And just to trust it, like there's nothing special about the breath or about the sensations of the body as an anchor, but we need something to do this training. Without a particular object, as a beginner, without a particular object to train with, we're, more, we're mostly likely just to be swept away by our habits, our mental habits. And we won't even realize we're being swept away. There's no sort of tether to show up our habits. But when we have an anchor and we have that strong intention to practice with the anchor, then when we're distracted, it's, it tends to stand out. Like, didn't I have an intention to be with the breath? And here I am. So it, it helps us to recognize more quickly, oh, this is just some habit that swept me away and I'm worrying about something I've worried about many times before. And... Here's the body, here's the breath in the body, receiving the in-breath, receiving the out-breath, noticing the continuity, maybe feeling proud, getting distracted, right? Because we're noticing, we're not noticing the pride as something happening, but we're getting identified with, oh, I'm doing it right, it's really working now. And then in doing that and not recognizing that as a thought, then we're 
disconnected from the present moment. But that pride, that confidence could arise, and we could just see that as, oh, that's just a thought, or that's just an emotion, a pleasant emotion, and it's like this. So then then there's that nimbleness. So even though we, we may be working well with an anchor, it's really okay to naturally allow the anchor to become something else when it when some other object, some other phenomenon becomes the predominant experience in the moment. We don't have to be fixed to the breath. Now this is the anchor. But as soon as that disappears, we know where to come back to. That's the technique. It's not that only the breath, nothing else, but that when something strong arises, it would create tension not to go to it. So we just allow the attention to go to what's predominant. And we practice not getting lost, not getting identified, but just seeing it as something arising in the present moment, something coming and going in the present moment. And then when it disappears, is no longer arising, then we come back to the next breath or to the body sitting. Or some people work with sounds as an, as an anchor. And so last week I talked about you know working with anchor, and then I talked about how we have to let the hindrances be the anchor sometime. So the five hindrances, this is one of those lists that's really useful to remember. It's like what hinders the continuity of mindfulness? Being with the breath, being in the present moment, what hinders that? Well, it's just five ways the mind tends to get lost and not realize it's lost. So craving all the different things we can crave, you know, craving being home, watching TV now. And we can get lost. And if we don't recognize, well, that's, those are just thoughts in the mind. That's called mindfulness. But not recognizing that that's just thought in the mind, that's distraction. And we're being distracted by one of the hindrances. Aversion, that's the next one. And all of it's, you know, the ways that the mind is aversive. Fear is a, uh, one of the qualities of aversion. Forms of aversion, fear, boredom, irritation, impatience, anger, hatred, resentment. Right? So there are many flavors of craving, many flavors of aversion. Dullness and restlessness are the next two. These are just energetic imbalances in the mind. The mind just sort of that flits about, can't rest anywhere. That's called restlessness. The mind that's like mud and just like heavy and dull. That's sleepiness or dullness. And then the fifth is doubt. Like, always wondering, am I doing it right? Is this right? Should I be doing it this way? Is this really right? And so the mind doesn't settle down. It's, a, it's like a restlessness, but it's specifically uh, like second-guessing what we're doing. So the key with the, the five hindrances is to practice with them. Not to believe the thought, I can't practice when there's so much aversion in my mind, or craving in my mind, or restlessness, or dullness, sleepiness, or doubt. So a hindrance is only a hindrance when we don't realize, oh, it's just doubt. And it's like this. That's called being mindful, but not aware that it's doubt, and then, and then being swept away. That's called suffering, because it's stressful to be caught up in doubt or craving or aversion, reacting to restlessness or dullness, it's, it hurts. So 
basically the, the main chunk of our meditation practice, once we've settled down, we remember why we're here, we remember to practice in the present moment, the real sort of working ground of meditation practice in the present moment is to work with the anchor, like the sensations of the breath at the nostrils or the sensations of the breath down in the belly, and to be sensitive to the hindrances, like to really, uh, you know, almost like a game. I mean, we want to we want to be like really vigilant. Like, can I catch every flavor of aversion before I get swept away by it? Can I catch all the different flavors of craving, wanting things to be other than they are? Like, especially with their body, like wanting that pain to go away in the back, wanting the sit to be over, all the different. You know, wanting things to be other than they are. Can I catch that? Can I catch right when the mind starts to get dull, or right when the mind starts to get restless? Can I catch doubt before it sweeps me, sweeps the mind away? So, this is like, but the way we do that isn't necessarily looking for craving or aversion, but we practice being really sensitive to the in breath and really sensitive, intimate with the out-breath or with body sensations. And if we're really intimate, really sensitive with the anchor, then when doubt arises or craving arises or restlessness arises, the mind is already really sensitive. We've got a very sensitive instrument and it will more likely notice when something arises in the present moment in the mind. So that's how we practice not getting lost with the hindrances, it's just being intimate in the moment. And we use the anchor as a training ground for intimacy. And then we're just much more likely to catch whatever else is arising in the present moment. Sometimes people think, you know, if someone's meditating, you know, you could sneak up on them, you know, and steal their watch that they took off or something. But actually, it's just the opposite. If someone's practicing mindfulness meditation, you know, there are different types of meditation. so. Some meditations, you're, you're actually going into a more trance-like state, but not this form of meditation. So even though we might be really intimate with the breath, there's no attachment to the breath. The mind's not lost in the experience of the breath. It's very nimble. So we'll notice things. There's one example. A friend of Joseph Goldstein was meditating in Vermont, I think, at a cabin, and he was sitting there following his breath or something like that. And he kept, you know, kind of hearing some sounds and noticing it was getting really warm. And, he, you know, but he, he wanted to be a good meditator. He said, forget that, you know, come back to the breath. Stay with the breath. You're supposed to be with the breath. Well, his chimney, you know how it is if you get, I forget what the stuff's called that gets caught in your chimney if you have a smoky fire. Creosol? What is it called? Creosol? Oh, oh, so... Anyway, so there evidently had caught fire, you know, and if you've ever been in a situation like that, it can be really dangerous. And uh, the roof had caught on fire. <laughs> so he was sitting there, you know, saying, you know, basically some part of his mind that wasn't quite conscious said, don't pay attention to the, to the cabin burning down. We've got a meditation to do here. And the idea, because the whole point of sitting practice is to make us skillful in the world. So we want to learn how to be sensitive, allow our minds to be nimble in that way, to just know what's predominant, know what needs attention in the moment, not to escape. 
some meditation practices are more about escape. And it, there's a value, there can be a value to those practices. But those practices aren't an end in themselves. And the way this particular tradition, the way we normally teach, it's not the only way, uh, is we teach wisdom and concentration together. So generally, we don't teach meditation just as a concentration practice, where you might go into an absorbed or state or trance-like state, where you're, you basically have uh, re- you're so concentrated on something that you're not aware of what's going on around you. And you're, you've trained your mind to pay attention to this object to the exclusion of everything else, like a visual image or a mantra. Or you can use the breath this way, too, as a concentration object. But that's not how I'm teaching. Uh, and it's, there are advantages to learning that deep concentration, so I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying that's not what we're doing right now. What we're doing now is we're using the breath as a mindfulness object to be in the present moment. And so when other objects arise in that present moment, the attention is nimble. It just sees and knows that. And then because we've trained with the breath as an anchor, then when that's no longer drawing the attention, predominant, then because of the training we've been doing, the attention naturally comes back to the anchor. It becomes like this uh, good friend of ours, just always coming back. And we feel comfortable there. The mind likes to pay attention to the breath if we train with it enough, or likes to come into the experience of the body if that's what you're using as your anchor. So that's the main work. And then the more we do that work of being with the anchor, catching the hindrances, seeing them as just things happening in the present moment, oh, it's just stillness, and it's like this. So not getting swept away, coming back to the anchor, oh, it's just craving, it's like this, and then coming back. Then in that, in that work, we begin to understand with wisdom, it's really an insight, we begin to understand what it's all about, like what the path is really about. Because, you know, we might say, well, the path is about paying attention to the breath and catching the hindrances, but that's not really what the path is about. The path is really about letting go. We're letting go of all of our attachments to all things. So we're we're, uh, realizing a heart or a mind that is not attached or identified, but that realization comes at the same time of being really present, really intimate. So we're not like in some la-la land being unattached, non-attached. We're right in the middle of our life, whether we're watching the breath or whether we're actually going about our day. And we're realizing that that the, the sort of essence of a, a true spiritual life is renunciation. And renunciation is a real joy. Now it sounds, you know, for us, the way we normally use the word, it sounds a little heavy and depressing. You know, to think that the essence of spiritual life, both the path and the fruit of spiritual life, is renunciation. But it's really not that way. So I want to talk a little bit so that we're more likely to recognize what true renunciation is and why it's a really beautiful thing and not like a should or a bad, you know, something that we have to do but we really like to hold on. The Buddha said, who has turned to renunci- uh, whoso has turned to renunciation, turned to non-attachment, 
of the mind is filled with all-embracing love and freed from thirsting after life. And one of the great uh, recent teachers, Ajahn Chah, um, a Buddhist monk from Thailand who died in the 90s, early 90s, said, we practice to give up, not to attain. And another time he said, if you give up a little, if you let go a little, you get a little happiness. If you let go a lot, you get a lot of happiness. And if you let go completely, your problems are over. <laughs> so that's, and this should feel a little bit like a koan or a mystery, like, well, what, is, what does that look like? Well, what does that actually look like to be a human being with a body, with responsibilities, with friends, with family, and letting go, renouncing the world? What does that look like? And so it's, we, we kind of get little glimpses in the formal meditation practice. Like, what does it mean to be intimate with the breath without being identified with it, without trying to control it? Or what does it mean to be on a wild bronco, you know, without trying to muscle our way? What does that look like? You know, or what does it mean to be in traffic without wanting it to be other than it is? Or falling in love without trying to control it or make it, you know, fit our idea. I mean, we can learn this lesson. We should be learning this lesson everywhere in our lives. Raising kids <laughs> without getting caught by our expectations for them. I forget who said it, but there's uh, one of the recent current teachers said something like, desire pulls so hard, it's surprising to find that it is empty. And this is the thing about the opposite of letting go is attachment, taking things personally. And this is such a strong force in the mind to want to grab a hold, take things personally. And so we have to investigate this. And see, we'll see this with the, the hindrances especially because they tend to be more seductive, more, more likely to be the cause for attachment. So, for example, when uh, dullness, for example, rises up, you're sitting, you know, or let's say you've gone on a retreat. You've taken vacation time. You've spent money to go on a retreat, you know, and there you are in your meditation retreat, and you're just full of dullness. You just don't want to do anything but sleep. And so so as that sleepiness comes into the mind, of course, we take it personally. And because we work so hard to get this time off and to earn the money to pay for the retreat and on and on like that, and we want so much to sort of make this a good retreat, that we feel insulted by the sleepiness. We feel like it's some kind of personal violation that now the mind is sleepy. So we get attached, we get identified with the sleepiness, and then we react to it in, you know, in millions of different ways. Each of us would react probably in different ways. Sometimes we give in to it, sometimes we struggle against it, sometimes we just judge ourselves, blame ourselves, sometimes we blame other people, like our roommate who snored last night. You know, so we can spin endlessly 
But what we don't tend to do is just practice with the dullness or the sleepiness. Like just understand, well, sleepiness is like this. It's just as good of an object to practice mindfulness with as the breath is. And see, the key is to remember the essence of practice, which is we, we can let go, the mind can let go of its tendency to identify with the sleepiness, to take it personally. Because in order to be mindful of it, we have to let go of that taking it personally. The taking it personally deludes the mind, so clarity then is gone. As soon as we take something personally, our perception is distorted by that. And we're not really present. We're sort of lost in the story that this is, you know, my mind is dull and it shouldn't be or whatever. And we're not aware that that's happening. We're just, we've taken the bait and we're gone until the mind spins long enough that it's enough suffering that we wonder why our heart's so bound up, why is the mind so stressed out. And we go, oh, thinking. <laughs> thinking is like this, right? We're back. So we learn a lot about renunciation just with the breath and with the different distractions that come up when we're paying attention to the breath. Because we have to let go of all the things our mind is inclined to do you know, to worry, to plan, all the different expressions of greed and aversion or, or craving and aversion. Those countless different ways that the mind can get caught up in craving and aversion. And we'll, we'll see hundreds in one sit, probably a thousand if we're careful, paying attention carefully, we'll see thousands of times the impulse to get caught up in craving or aversion. And so that means for a thousand times we can practice renunciation. Like seeing that there's a choice of getting identified or just seeing it as something happening. Just seeing it as a present moment phenomenon. Cravings like this. Craving in the mind is like this. Images are like this. The image is like this. The feeling in the heart of the craving is like this. It's just like this. It's just this. It's just this. Staying, that's the continuity, the sustaining, right? We're staying right with the force of craving until there's no, it's no longer engaging. It's, it falls away. That's the amazing thing. So renunciation, understanding it, it leads to the deepest insights, like the one I just described. Don't underestimate how powerful that is. When you see the mind craving for something, like, you know, sometimes when I'm sitting, especially when I'm teaching, you know, and there's a guided sit, and then after a while I stop talking and there's just silence. And sometimes in my mind will arise the image that it won't be long before all these people go home <laughs> and my day will be done and I can do whatever I want. <laughs> you know, and I'll imagine something. I'll, do, I'll read the news, I'll make something to eat or talk to my wife. Or, and so that will come up in the mind. And... Uh, and what that really is, you know, what I'll really see is some kind of discontent in the moment, right? And so if I'm, if I'm practicing well in that moment, see, that itself is not a problem. It's nothing to be ashamed about to have that image in your mind because I didn't make that happen. That happens because of how the mind, this mind, has been conditioned. So we shouldn't take that personally. It's not like I thought, okay, I'm done saying all the instructions, so now I think I'll think about, no, 
I don't do that. Nobody does that. Those thoughts just come because it's just how the mind's conditioned. So it comes. Being a good practitioner means that when it comes, when a thought like that comes, oh, well, you know, I can, that we watch it. We feel the force of craving, that, that feeling in the heart that are kind of like leaning forward into the future, like, oh, won't it be nice when? You know, so we imagine the future and then somehow energetically we can lean forward into the future. So we notice that craving and we notice it and we notice it and we notice it and then we notice it disappears without having to gratify that desire. Now that's a powerful insight. When we see any desire, even something as ordinary as the one I've described, you know, wanting to, let's say, have something sweet after you guys all go home, then if I see that desire, see that desire, see that desire, and then see it disappear, literally gone, not in the mind anymore, not in the heart anywhere, then what that does is it undermines all desire. Because in a way, the truth of desire has been shown up a little bit, that it's there, it's there, it's there, it goes without needing to be gratified. Because the delusion of desire or craving is that when it comes up and we, it's like, I won't be happy until that happens, right? That's the kind of idea when we're identified or attached to our craving, there's this thought that part of the thought is, and I won't be happy until I get this. Right? So what we do energetically is we squeeze the heart, we, we cause ourselves suffering, and we say, and we don't actually notice that we're doing this, but we basically are saying to yourself, I'm not going to let go of the squeeze of my heart until you give me that thing I want. Right? We create the suffering. We create the stress. It's a kind of a game, a conscious game that we play with ourselves. But if we watch it carefully, patiently, we see that that squeeze goes away, without having to get. And then the next time a desire comes up, there's a little bit more wisdom. Hmm, <laughs> maybe this desire is like that other one. It's the same with fear. It's the same with aversion. We can kind of call the bluff of all of these uh, forces of attachment. That's what renunciation does. If we renounce the, the tendency, the momentum of craving, the momentum of aversion, and just stay with it, with mindfulness, then we see that it's bark, it's all bark and no bite. Now some things take a long time before we see that it's okay. Like, for example, if you're somebody who was raised to think that you can't really be happy until you have the perfect partner, and there you are, you know, however old you might be, and you don't have the perfect partner, then your heart can really crave. You know, basically your heart will say, I don't care if you're happy, you're not really happy until you get a partner because that's what you've been programmed to believe. And so our heart hurts because we think we're, we're attached to this idea, this ideal, that in order to be really happy, I need a partner, a good partner, who loves me and who's just the way I want him or her to be. Then if we're... It seems like that thought, that, that ache, lasts forever. That's part of the delusion. Actually, it comes and goes. And if, we're, if we work with it when we're practicing, like when we're sitting and it comes up, then we'll see it's there, it's there, it's there, it's there. It's gone. And that's so insightful to see 
something that we assume in a superficial way, we just assume it's always there in the heart, that needing, that wanting, that discontent because we don't have. But it's not there all the time. Same with sadness. You know, we might think uh, you experience a real loss and we might think, you know, I should feel sad all the time. But if we watch, we see, no, I'm not actually sad all the time. I'm sad, I'm sad, I'm sad, and then it's gone. And then that, that begins to change our relationship to the story of sadness, to the story of neediness or craving. So this is the real flavor of insight, like the fruit of practice. And then the more we understand renunciation, it's actually, we can go directly there. In a way, we sit down and the whole system understands, the mind-body system understands, it's all about letting go. It's all about sort of opening to the present moment and letting it be what it is. So if you don't like the word letting go, you can use letting be. And we go, we can go right to that. And then that insight, you know, that's alive in our practice, then that reorients everything. Then working with the anchor is really about renunciation. And working with distraction is really about renunciation. And working with the posture and the, the sitting posture is all about renunciation. Everything is about renunciation. And renunciation is, is in the end, this realization that our happiness, we're no longer believing that our happiness is going to come from particular conditions of our life. Instead, we see that happiness, real joy, real love, comes from letting go. That's where it comes from. What we actually want, what the heart wants, the release that the heart really wants, comes from letting go, not from getting. And this is a, you know, this is a hard lesson. And it definitely takes at least a lifetime and probably a billion lifetimes. <laughs> if you read the story of the, you know, in the Buddhist tradition and the legend or the sort of mythology of the Buddha, this historic guy who lived 25, 2600 years ago, you know, they talk about his aspiration to be a Buddha happening eons and eons and eons before he took birth as that historic being 2600 years ago. Like, a number beyond our imagination that he cultivated the practice that long. Of course, he also developed the talent to be able to teach. To be free, we don't need to be as articulate as the Buddha. But the Buddha didn't want to just be free, but he wanted to be free and be able to articulate it so other people could get it. And that was his aspiration. And so you can have that aspiration. That, that would be nice. But... That's called the bodhisattva aspiration. You know, so, and in Buddhism, there's a lot of arguments be between the different lineages. Some lineages, like the Mahayana lineage, really emphasizes the bodhisattva aspiration, that not just to practice to be free, but to practice to be a Buddha. So you're not only having your enlightenment, but you've cultivated the personality that allows you to sort of really teach. And you're like super charismatic. And so people really listen to what you have to say and do what you tell them to do. And then you, that makes you a good teacher. And, or we could just have the aspiration to be free and we'll just see if we end up, you know, a Buddha or not. It's mostly, you know, just 
spiritual politics from my point of view. <laughs> but where it is important is to understand that uh, we want to we want an aspiration that actually inspires us to practice. And for some people, aspiring to be somebody who takes care of all beings is really inspiring. And if that's inspiring for you and will actually get you to sit, then work with that aspiration. And if what works for you is you just reflecting on your own kind of heaviness and your own wish to be free or just to be a good partner or a good mom or a good dad or a good citizen, you know, then just work with that aspiration. So to take it just on like not what's the right or wrong one, but what actually will inspire you to do what you need to do. So I'll leave it here so that we have some time to check in with each other. Maybe you have some examples in your own life about renunciation and especially about the joy or the beauty that you felt with uh, that letting go or letting something be, putting something down. Or any questions that you have about the talk tonight? Anything that comes to mind? Mm-hmm. Please say your name again. Um, Well, I think what I said was that then, then we, we see that this whole, the practice really becomes about renunciation, whether we're working with our posture, whether we're working with an anchor or with distraction. So what would that look like, you know, working with the posture as renunciation? Well, for example, we might have an ideal in our mind about what our posture should be. Like yesterday when I sat, I was able to sit like this, but today I'm like this. But maybe we have to let go of that ideal or that idea of what we should be, how we should, like the guy sitting next to me, he's so still. You know, I should be still. So we have to, all these shoulds, all the, the sort of ground for attachment, we, we can, with awareness, with mindfulness, we see there's actually a choice, either to get attached and be swept away or just to feel the impulse to get identified without actually getting identified. So if we see the force of attachment, that's not being attached. Attachment implies that we're deluded by that force of attachment. We actually get swept away. So we're not aware that we're attached. So that's the definition of attachment, when we're not aware that we're attached. I'm not attached. (laughs) You know, it's like people say, you know, I'm not angry. Other thoughts people have?
discouraging? <laughs> It's nice to have that vast view because it takes the pressure off, actually. And remember when I was talking about the anchor, how we can very easily overdo it, like wanting to get back to the breath and therefore missing it, uh, being a little too aggressive. And it's the same with this, too. It's like thinking that we need to renounce, we need to let go. It can be another attachment, like you suggested. And so one of the advantages of having that vast view, like it's going to take a long time, that's just an idea. That's just a thought. It's not a truth. It's not an absolute at all. But what it might do as a skillful means, it might help us relax and just do what comes next instead of feeling like once and for all, I'm going to do it. And the thing about renunciation is the more we understand that that's what the practice is about, we all, we, it starts to... It starts to have this sort of magical effect. I don't, can't think of a better word right now than magical, which is we see that we're still an ignorant human being in the sense that we get caught in our attachments all the time. But it's almost like in a, in a magical way, there's space around that realization that I'm just a deluded human being getting attached all the time, and we're not attached to that. It's true. I'm still... a deluded human being, I still have a lot of my, my attachments, have a lot of momentum, but now that whole truth is being held in this sort of wise space that's not getting attached to being a deluded person. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's like uh, learning how to skillfully be imperfect. You know, what is the skillful way to relate to being an imperfect human being? a being that has habit energy of anger and greed and dullness and restlessness and doubt. And we can either take it really personally and get really attached to all of our unskillful conditioning, or we can relate with wisdom to all of our unskillful conditioning and all our skillful conditioning, for that matter. And see, then that's sort of that vast view. So then it doesn't matter if our full and complete and perfect enlightenment comes in the next moment or 10 billion lifetimes from now. Mm -hmm. A little bit more time if anybody else has a thought they'd like to share with the group or a question. Mm-hmm. Maria. Yeah. Well, 
And so just remember, it's a, it's a spiritual story, and to, to really use it as that as opposed to literal truth. But maybe it's literally true, I don't know. But the Buddha talked about it, and when he described one of, one of his under the Bodhi tree that night was actually seeing his mind actually perceived his lifetimes. And he described it as, I think I've said this before on Wednesday night, he described it as... Uh, the length of time, the number of lifetimes he led was uh, if you had a mountain seven miles wide at its base, seven miles high, so like a Mount Everest or something like that, maybe even taller, I think seven miles would be even taller than that, and then if once every hundred years you dragged a silk scarf along the top, as long as that takes to erode that big mountain of solid rock, that's like one whatever eon or something like that. And then I think there were hundred thousands of those and four immensities. And I don't even know what an immensity is. <laughs> so, so you know, they made up some number that made it sound really long. <laughs> well, I find this reassuring because yeah. yeah. No. And the, the, the Buddhist, it takes longer for a Buddha because, first of all, he does it without another teacher. So when the Buddha understands how to use the mind to know the mind, like that turning back in on itself, he's, he doesn't have instructions. Like we still have instructions. And so we're, we actually, technically speaking, we can't be Buddhas this lifetime because we're still, the Buddhist teachings are still available. We have to, in order to be an official Buddha, you have to have your realization without any help. No, oh, that's From, so unfair. No, 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 no. The idea is the idea is the the world. You know, the world system gets into a really dark time where there's not any wisdom, and it's like that uh, Taoist symbol. You know, there's that sort of little white in the middle of the dark and a little dark in the middle of the white. Well, it's like the darkness itself. Is part, you know, how everything comes together, interconnected. It's the lack of wisdom itself that creates the conditions for wisdom to arise. And so that's that's just why they call it a Buddha. I mean, you could call it whatever you want, but that's what it means. It means something arising where where it's been lost. So there, in you know, the Buddhist scheme, there have been many, many Buddhas because they have this idea that whether it's this planet or somewhere else, who knows, but that things have been going on for a long, 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 long time. And so many Buddhas have come and gone in that time. And this is just the most recent Buddha. And when he sort of put forth his teachings, nobody was teaching that way at the time. And so far, the teachings have kept alive to some degree. And at some point, the Buddha said, at some point, they won't be alive anymore. They, no one will remember these teachings. And then another Buddha will eventually be born and will teach, and on and on like this. But anyway, we don't have to be a Buddha. Uh, we, can, we can just learn from the Buddha. Like a lot of people at the time of the Buddha, thousands it sounds like, had the same awakening the Buddha had. Now they didn't have the same capacity to teach, but the freedom in their heart was exactly the same as the Buddha's. So many, many, many people, if you read the suttas, the discourses, you see there's like people getting enlightened all over the place at the time of the Buddha. And even today, you know, we don't have a great teacher like the Buddha, but 
seems like in my own life and uh, seeing, looking at my teachers, that the practice has a really powerful effect. And just the people I know here at the center have been practicing for a while. So clearly, in my mind, clearly this practice delivers if you do it. And there's probably you know any number of people in this room right now that could testify to the benefit of doing this practice over time. So even though in terms of ultimate enlightenment, like really being free from greed, anger, and delusion, no more to, to sort of be uh, weighed down by the force of greed, anger, and delusion, that may be far off. But the benefits of the practice, people shouldn't think are far off. And the Buddha says that. He says, this practice is good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. <laughs> Well, let's leave it here. Just take a few seconds and let go of the words. (laughs) We can appreciate being here and appreciate connecting with these ancient and really practical teachings that have been passed down simply because men and women have undertaken the practice, learned some things, passed it on generation by generation. So we can aspire to do the best we can to really integrate the teachings into our lives, to cultivate awareness, mindfulness for the benefit of all beings so that our lives become the cause for peace, and wisdom and compassion in the world. May all beings be free from suffering and free from the roots of suffering. Thanks for coming, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.